Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? You know how painful it is. Asseval helps your in-house team by taking tough tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia-Pacific, which includes onboarding, procurement, device management, real-time IT support, offboarding, and more. Gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place with our state-of-the-art platform. Check out Esevel, E-S-E-V-E-L.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code BRAVE for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to BRAVE. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Al, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, sci-fi nerd, and dad of two daughters. Mondays for your weekly tech news debate with Shiyan Ko, managing partner of Hustle Fund. Wednesdays for interviews of regional changemakers covering both the highs and lows of leadership. Fridays for personal diary insights and listener questions and answers. Join our movement of over 12,000 members for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.bravesea.com. Hey, Gerald, another week, another Q&A. So hit me with the questions. Yeah, totally. So today's listener Q&A um, the first question is really on why do founders, you know, show off on PR, uh, on lists like Forbes 30 under 30, what's the benefits or, you know, is there just perceived benefits or no real benefits to it? Yeah, I found her questions quite interesting, the four questions. And actually, I thought this was the most interesting of a lot. Uh, and I thought it was interesting because the phrasing is show off, right? So I think there's a bit of a hero slash, you know, kind of like demigod status thing that's there, right? showing off. So I think there's a bit of a value judgment, obviously, between a media feature versus showing off, right? Uh, so I think I'll talk about the positive stuff, about why they want to show off in general. I think, first of all, there's a whole bunch of them, right? I think, first of all, it's because of the legitimacy of the startup. So no customer really wants to buy from some unknown loser, no-name company, right? They want to buy from winners, right? They want to buy from companies that are hot, that are rising, that you know, represent the future. And so I think customers actually often search or find that these media mentions are quite useful for them in their buying decisions. And so I think founders choose to be on Forbes 30 under 30 or wherever they are because they want to kind of build that legitimacy. Uh, The second, of course, is that I think the media really wants human stories, right? So the media doesn't want like company stories about growth rates and how robust the business is. I mean, there's kind of interesting, but it's not the most interesting, right? The interesting stuff we want to do is a human interest story. We want to talk about how this founder went through this adversity, classic hero's journey, came through, overcame some obstacles, got some advice, changed their life, built a business, and the business is doing well. Obviously, there's some risk in the future, but, you know, the future is bright. You know, this is a human story that's very common. And especially if you read some of the articles, you know, maybe I'm like a cynical, skeptical person who likes reading too much and writing. But, you know, you can see the narrative arc is very consistent because humans want that human interest story. And so when they profile the company, they end up profiling the founder often. 
because they need and want that human interest story. Third, of course, is that it feels good, obviously, for the founder, right? The founder has gone through a ton of rejection in the first year, the second year, the third year, fourth year. Now you're suddenly getting validated, right? You're suddenly getting some good press. You're suddenly getting media. You sit down, it's exciting. I remember I was excited to go through my first TV interview across, you know, Southeast Asia media, channels use Asia, and I had to prepare. I was so excited and I was like, oh, finally, you know. And then uh, the best part is like my parents finally somewhat understood what I was doing at that point of time. Because before that, it was like, oh, you're wasting your time, you're like, blah, blah, blah. And then I was like, oh, yeah, you're channel Studios Asia. Okay. That's like get some validation, right? You know. Next is, of course, is a lot of prospective employees. They want to know who their boss is. They want to know who the CEO, who the founder is. And so, of course, they will be looking at Glassdoor, where it's unlike this much, right? Obviously, they want to look your website. But the truth is, they want to see the visuals, right? The story, the narrative of who the boss is. And I think employees definitely often read this media. And of course, you know, they take it with a grain of salt, but they use that just to make a judgment to be like, do I trust this person? Do I like this person? And do I believe this person is very confident and professional and savvy to be able to take the company to the next level? I think also another thing that's actually interesting is that investors actually also want to know who this person is, right? So investors are often trying to make a decision about a company, but they're also trying to get a quick sense of who this person is. Is this person legit and so, so forth? And so this is a fast way for them to get up to speed on who the person is, their personal story. And also, I think eventually sometimes it's helpful, right? Because they can build that internal story because every investor work as a team to persuade and make a final decision about whether the investment is made. And so sometimes the media articles can be helpful to persuade internal decision makers to say like, okay, you know, the company is pretty good, but this founder is incredible because of these things, because they overcame ABC. And they have that experience. And, you know, that's why this experience is totally relevant for this company. And lastly, I think founders often think about it is that it's good to attract new customers as well. And if that ties back to your earlier point earlier, but I think what I would disagree slightly is that I would say it's not really good from my personal experience for top of the funnel. I think the truth is that most people don't really read Forbes or, you know, Financial Times or Channel Asia. I mean, the target buyer is often much more in your industry magazines much more your industry conferences, much more at home and often targetable by your ads and your email list and marketing. So I would say like as a top of the funnel way to get leads, I would say it's normally underperform. But what I often speak about is that this is actually really good for middle of the funnel, right? This is a great way to improve your conversion rate because early, like I say, customers want to know that this is a, not a no-name company, but it's a brand name company or has that upside. But also it's a good way for you to push out as content to them, right? As, you know, as part of your monthly newsletter, as part of your quarterly conversation, maybe to add it to your, you know, sales pitch deck, you know, you can add it as a logo, right? This is a good ways for you to re-engage the prospect and kind of like give them additional confidence as part of that movie narrative, right? For them to feel increased conviction in buying from a startup that is solving a problem that they are facing and want to solve, but are scared to invest the time and energy and onboarding for an unknown company, right? And so I think overall, I think founders show off on PR because again, it builds legitimacy for the startup, for customers. The media wants human stories, not company stories. It is a feel-good moment, which is a validation for founders. It's good for employee attraction, conversion, because employees want to know who their boss is. Investors want to know who the leader is, and so it does help improve fundraising. And lastly, it does help 
the middle of the funnel conversion, especially for sales prospects. Thanks so much for sharing that. So I guess, you know, the next time we see founders posting on social media, I think it's not just about jumping to an immediate value judgment, but also thinking deeper on the business drivers, right? That sort of make them drive and search for publicity outlets. Uh, I think the second question is really around accountability for startup use of funds. I think there are multiple high-profile incidents, whether it's TX or even the Lingo. So how should startups think about accountability for funds? Is there accountability for the use of funds or the outsiders? Yeah, I mean, of course, I think the key point is that there is accountability in the sense that every executive, and that's not just the founders, but also the C-suite, right? Chief marketing officer, the chief financial officer, or the head of marketing or the controller, like the executive folks, Everybody has a fiduciary duty to the company, right? To the shareholders. And what it means, of course, can be quite ambivalent, can be quite you know, scary. But what it just means is that are you doing things that are in the best interest of the company, right? And the best interest of the company, for example, will be working hard, be thoughtful about your experiments and not blowing it on personal expenses, right? So these are all fiduciary duties that you have, especially, I think, when you have external investors. So obviously, you know, if you are a single person company, right? Like a solo proprietor, a company, then obviously whatever business you do is very interlinked with your personal requirements, right? But the moment you have external investors, then suddenly you're basically saying, I'm responsible for, let's say I own 50% and then three investors own another 50%, right? I actually have a fiduciary duty to the four of us, right? To do what's best for the company, to build that economic engine. Because that's the promise that was made to bring that capital in in the first place. So the fundamental accountability is really at the executive level, right? And you call it moral because that's the right thing to do. You can call it ethical because that's what you should do as a business officer. And of course, it's legal, right? Because when you sign contracts and so, so forth, there's a fiduciary duty to do so. Of course, I think the next layer, I think what people are looking at, what's the topic of the day is really about boards, right? Like how responsible board directors and the board directors are people who are nominated by the shareholders and they could be a shareholder, for example, but they're individuals nominated by shareholders because a shareholder could be a, a whole company, right? A whole fund, it could be a whole syndicate. But a board director is someone, an individual nominated to take on that responsibility to provide control, oversight, and diligence, right? And that's actually a really interesting thing because many startups don't have boards, actually. So your angel round or your even a seed round, many startups don't have boards. So the truth is there's no board, therefore there's no oversight layer. And the minority shareholders, for example, would have to trust the fiduciary duty of the executives. But if you have a board, then of course the board theoretically has the power to ensure that the fiduciary duty is being carried out. So obviously they have the power to approve budgets for the year ahead. They have the ability to veto and review excess spending across certain limits. And of course they have to be, you know, updated on a quarterly basis on a key strategy and updates on that. I mean, in practice, you know, there are bad actors as well, right? Especially on the fiduciary side. So for example, in the FTX scandal, the truth is obviously there are multiple lapses in various block control and oversight. But the truth of the matter is that there was backdoor code where, you know, the head of engineering and the CTO basically created a way for capital to be transferred that did not trigger the internal controls that they had. And so that obviously violated the transfer reporting requirements to the board. And so the board was unaware. So, 
in that sense, the executives lied to the board and did not commit their fiduciary duties and so forth. And these are all coming out like so. Again, I'm not saying that there aren't other issues, but I'm just saying that that is a core like factor that was intentionally done, right? And so the truth of the matter is that good faith founders and there are bad faith actor founders as well. And also in practice, the truth is that boards are very detailed oriented, process oriented folks. And so I think obviously there's public boards, there's private boards, you know, there's all kinds of folks. But in general, the best practice is that this board is very much focused on the details, willing to do the due diligence, willing to go into the details, um, and very focused on making sure that the right things are being done in the right process, right? Unfortunately, VCs are very focused on growth. They're focused on the future. They're focusing on the strategy. And so you have this 12 quarterly board meeting and the VCs are spending one hour and a half, right? On the growth, the future. And that's what I think a lot of founders are buying VCs for, right? In the early Q&A, we said, you know, you buy VCs to have better odds about the future, right? And so I think that approach obviously makes sense, especially when they're good faith VCs and good faith founders working together. And so they assume that the processes are being done well and they trust the thing and they kind of like approve what needs to be done. And then they focus the time on growth, right? But the thing is, unfortunately, things can go sideways, right? You know, there can be bad faith actors at the middle management layer, at the executive layer, right? And then when the board is not focused on the process, not focused on doing audits and so, so forth, then I think that's when things can go sideways. And that's when I think things go sideways, they spiral out, and then we have this media, and now we have this conversation and question from the audience about, you know, is that any accountability? For startup user funds and answers, yes, there should be at multiple levels in theory and in practice for good faith actors, yet things can go bad when they're bad faith actors or the board has lapsed in their process DG orientation. Thanks so much for that explainer on board responsibilities, controls. I think all of people who don't have the sort of exposure to responsibilities of board members, this is definitely very eye-opening. The next question, which I really thought was a good question from the listener, which is, what's the privilege behind being able to raise capital and found the startup, right? I mean, as a VC, we speak to so many founders and obviously there's a certain segment of founders that often get invested more than those that grew up, those that don't. I think that's also been like sort of proven by research as well, right? So from your perspective, what's the privilege that underpins it? Yeah, I mean, that's why I really enjoyed this set of questions because they're all quite spicy, right? Especially with the, <laughs> the language here. Yeah, I mean, there's privilege behind building a startup, right? And I think there are three major aspects that are there. And I think one other way of thinking about it is these are advantages, right? And these are advantages that you have in building this company that you may have earned it or you may not have earned it, right? But I think obviously the first, of course, is being rich. And that doesn't necessarily mean that being rich enough to find your own startup, although I've seen a few folks have done it. So I've seen founders who are rich enough to find their own startup because maybe they earned it from before, right? Or maybe they come from money and so they're able to bootstrap for a good chunk of time. Or they have enough capital and savings to eat ramen effectively, right? And you know, support a family for two years while they build a company. So I think just having the capital to be able to do a startup and not worry about eating, shelter, your family is an advantage, honestly. And you need to have that because you've got to focus on the company, right? There are ways around it. You can build a company's side hustle. You can save in advance, you know. But the truth is, I think having the financial resources really does help. 
like I said, the spectrum from how you earned it to how much money you have, but definitely is an advantage, right? The second advantage, of course, is you're rich in social capital, right? So people trust you. People trust you because they want to work with you. They want to help out on the side for you. They want to invest in your company. They want to buy your stuff. They want to introduce you to other folks. I mean, it's a big advantage to have, right? And maybe, obviously, again, maybe you earned it. Maybe you didn't earn it. You know, maybe it's a long time. Maybe it feels unfair because, you know, you're a fresh grad and you're fighting someone who's like 20 years experience. You know, feels privileged to have that. But the truth is, yeah, I think having that advantage in social capital helps you accelerate the business very quickly because then people don't spend time doing due diligence. People don't spend as much time kind of like hemming and hoeing and, you know, dancing around the bush. Just there's that. The third thing, of course, is that, you know, building a company is really, really hard, right? And so being educated and street smart and savvy is important to build a company because, you know, you have to do engineering, you have to manage sales, you have to, you know, get coaching. Uh, you know, there's so much hard stuff about building a startup. And so how did you get it? Was it because you were lucky to be in good school or you had hands-on training? And well, then maybe because you were born in the right country, you know, you were born to the right parents. Maybe it was just lucky. Maybe the government gave you a scholarship. Maybe you ran into the right mentor. You know, you had the right genetic lottery, right? You had the right network that you'd be able to come in. Like, those are all things that let you have the opportunity to get educated and get savvy, right? And so I think in terms of being rich, being social capital rich, being educated, these are all advantages to raise capital upon a startup. For me, I, I do think about that tone a little bit. And I think the difference between privilege and advantage is really like, what are you doing with it, right? Like, I think lots of folks have these advantages and they sit on it, right? They don't use it. They're comfortable with it. In fact, lots of folks squander it, right? So I think let's take a step back, if I can, to say let's respect folks who want to make a difference regardless of their advantage. And of course, if we don't have advantage, just we have advantage in some areas and we have advantages in other areas, then let's be clear-eyed and realistic about it. And let's try to build our advantage in those areas as much as we can. And I think one thing that's underappreciated is that, you know, still startups are all about teams, right? There's no one-man startup. Of course, maybe at the start is one person, but it's about the teaming, right? Can you team with someone to cover? They have certain advantages, you have certain advantages. How do you team? How do you learn together? How do you grow together, right? As a team, as a community. And I think that's another approach to grow and think about it. Yeah, thanks so much, Jeremy, for sharing that. Totally think that there is the truth, which is life is unfair. Some people have X advantages, some people have Y advantages. And I think the truth of the matter is as a founder, you still have to focus on your own personal unfair advantages, right? When you choose to build something out. I think that's also something VCs look out for. What is the earned right that you have in building this company in this market, in this geography? Um, I think tied to this question, is listener also gave another really great question around how do founders deploy capital responsibly now that they have exercise their privilege to go out and raise that money, right? So three key parts from my perspective. The first is you have to know your business, what the growth levels are, what your strategy is, and what the return on investment of various expansion initiatives. If you don't know this stuff, you can't deploy capital responsibility, right? Because the capital is there to help the company grow. And so you have to know how much capital you need and you got to know how you're going to deploy it because you actually know your business really, really well. So it's really fundamental. I know it's pretty basic. People might laugh a little bit. Like, yeah, of course the founder knows their business, but 
I think the level of detail is not like a ballpark thing. It's like you had to be very clear, like, oh, I'm going to spend this much of money, you know, so far off is. I think basics and fundamentals are really important, right? So that's key. I think the second part is really about structuring your spending as experimental milestones. So what I mean by that is that obviously when you build in a startup, everything is a learning moment, right? It's like, can I build a technology? Does a customer want to buy this? What's their top problem? What attributes of this product is really important to them? What are the features to build? What are the cohort metrics are? There's so many different like learning moments that you're just building rapidly. And so you've already got to structure them as individual milestones and all of them are like learning points, right? And you know, you run the experiment and you're just going to be like, okay, I ran this experiment on marketing copy. I did an A-B test. Yeah. For this, the marketing copy is like, it's really about being 10x better. The other copy is about 10x faster and more convenient. Which one's better for my customer persona? Well, the truth is you could spend $1 million on experiment. You could spend $100,000. You could spend $10,000. You could spend $1,000 on experiment. But that is really kind of like how expensive was your learning rate, right? You know, how expensive was it? Did it take for you to learn that? And the truth of the matter is that if you run out of cash before you were able to learn fast enough, then you just die as a company. So the successful companies are the ones who are able to learn faster than the cash inflow is. And so I think being able to structure that uh, experiments very aggressively and very efficiently so that everything is either a green light or a learning moment, you know, is really key. The last thing, of course, is being clear about your business expenses and your personal expenses. So what it means is that once you have capital, obviously you should pay yourself a living salary to support your family and lets you be your best at work. Next, of course, layer would be that when you start layering benefits, it shouldn't just be personal. It should be, for example, health insurance should be fair and tiered with excess. So what I mean by tiered is that, you know, may not be able to for everybody but it should be tiered to the class of employees. So for example, it may not apply to blue-collar workers, but you may apply for white-collar workers, for example. You may apply to HQ, but not to satellite offices. But I think being thoughtful about that benefit and being able to articulate the value proposition is quite key because otherwise it can come across as unfair or you know too personally motivated. Lastly, is that what the matter is that I think a lot of founders, you know, you're in starvation mode, right? And so you're very like, you know, tight in capital and so, so forth. And then, at some moment, you kind of hit that hockey stick moment and you start raising a ton of money with that growth and maybe you get to do some secondaries as well. And that's really, I think, the moment that some stuff can really go crazy, right? Because I think founders can... I think for me, my personal theory is like, for example, it's like when your body, if your parents, for example, go through famine, right? And you're pregnant during that time. Then what happens is that when you grow up, your bodies, your genes are much more programmed from an epigenetic basis, pack on a lot more fat, right? Because your body is trying to say, oh, it's starvation mode, starvation mode. So I need to pack as much calories into fat just in case famine is coming. I think founders, you know, after like five years of starvation, it's finally kind of like, you kind of say, oh, this is finally my mobile. I can finally get back the money that I spent, you know, implicitly by subsidizing companies. This is my moment to get back my focal salary, right? This is my moment to enjoy a good life, right? There's some truth to that. I, I think there's a way to do that nicely. Obviously, you know, I have one founder who finally gave himself permission to live on his own, to get meals prepared for him. And so, you know, he doesn't have to cook himself and everything and buy it. So finally have enough money to go to the gym and get a personal trainer, right? So that's fair. But I think at some level, it can really kind of like go overboard, right? So like flights for personal reasons that 
uh, quasi business expenses, right? All that stuff can honestly, you know, I think it's rational for each founder because they did it and they're smart people. And there's so many stories of bad faith founders who just overspend the capital. But of course, from the public perspective, it's like they're going crazy from the side. From the media's perspective, it's just like, you know, a few day, right? So I think for folks, I think you just have to be careful about business versus personal expenses and just be like, okay, does this pass the sunshine test, right? If this was in the media, would I be happy to defend this moment? So overriding startup founders can deploy capital responsibility by, first of all, really understanding the business and know what the growth levels are about how to deploy the capital. Secondly, structuring every spending quantum as experimental milestones with key learning points and accelerating that learning curve while being as cost-efficient as possible. And lastly, being clear about the separation between business expenses and personal expenses. Awesome. Thanks so much, Jeremy, for giving such a thoughtful answer around how do you deploy capital responsibly, right? Um, and I guess that's especially true in this market where runways are getting tighter, you know, cut employee calls and all that, but you just got to cut like personal calls, right? Yeah, with that, I think, you know, We'd like to thank this listener for the quick range of questions. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.